thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Tonight for the Latin Rite, it is uh, Ash Wednesday, and for us in the Eastern Rites, it was Ash Monday. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but when you, I'm sure, I'm sure you've noticed, when you walk to, up to the priest, he signs you up on your forehead and says, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Why does he do that? Huh, he didn't know it was going to be a quiz today. <laughs> Why does he do that? That's a good point. Yes. Reading of Joel, right? Yes, absolutely. This is the moral reading, meaning at the level of me personally today, what do I have to do to improve my life? And the church is helping us and reminding us of this, that we're going to die. But is that it? Is that all? Let's go to Genesis. Thank you. When was that first time said? When when was those words spoken the first time? Not quite. When Adam... When Adam sinned, when Adam sinned, and God went through the list, he, he first spoke to the serpent, then to the woman, then to the man. And what did he do right there and then? What did God do? He put Adam under what? A curse. So the covenant has blessings and curses, and that was the curse of the covenant. So now, you walk up, and what is the priest doing to you? What is he putting you under? A curse. Do you understand? This is not some sort of a little symbolic thing or a prep talk to kind of, you know, remind, remind us of what we have to... I mean, this is part of it, absolutely. But it's far bigger than that. Folks, I got some news for you. We're under a curse. That's why we die. Because we are under a curse. So now why is the church doing that? So that why is the church doing that? So you know there is a pact between the church and some psychologists to create more depressed people so they can go and see them. Why is the church doing that? Because we have to repent. We have to repent, absolutely. But what else? Yeah, all those are the moral reading, and those are very, very good. But the primary meaning of it all is what? We're going to die, right? And what did Christ say? He said, The one who loses his life will gain it. Isn't that odd? 
Christ didn't come to take the curse away. He actually fulfilled it. But He fulfilled it in a marvelous way. Because it is through dying that we are born eternal life. Isn't that amazing how He took that curse, left the shell, emptied it from substance, and replaced it with a blessing? You understand what He did? Isn't that amazing that Christ took that curse that was put on man from the dawn of time, on Adam. He emptied it from its substance. Oh, death, where is your sting? That was St. Paul's exclamation. Christ left the curse. We're going to die. Physically, we're going to die. He didn't take that away. But the substance of it, us going to hell, he replaced with us going to heaven. So that through dying, through that curse, we're blessed. I mean, think about that. That's, that's exactly what he did. Under all appearances, we're still dying. We're getting sick. We're getting old. And one day we're going to die. But beyond the appearances, we're crowned in glory. You see the Eucharistic meaning behind it all? Under all appearances, it's a bread. Beyond appearances, it is God. Under all appearances, we're going to die. Beyond appearances, we're going to be raised to glory. So the church, being a loving mother, reminds us, number one, of the curse of our duty. Our duty is to die with Christ. A Christian is born to die. A Christian is born to die. His purpose is to die with Christ on the cross. And that part of Lent, therefore, going back to all the good points that every one of you made, is a preparation for what? Number one, to show God that we love Him. So we fast, we choose some form of a penance, primarily because we want to give glory to God, first. Secondarily, because we want to improve and become better at a bunch of other things. But primarily, it is our way of saying, we want to glorify you, Lord. For just as your Son, our Lord, glorified you in the garden, so we want to glorify you as well. That is the wonderful and glorious season that we are entering in. It's a grace-filled season. And I hope that if you have not yet done that, you would already have picked something to work on for the seven weeks that are ahead of us. And if you don't have any idea what to do and you're married, ask your wife or your husband. If you're not, ask your parents. They'll have plenty of things for you to do. Very well. With that, let's move on to chapter 6 of the book of Revelation. So in chapter 6 of the book of Revelation, we saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say, as with a voice of thunder, come. And I saw and behold a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that men should slay one another, 
and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I saw, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a balance in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm all in wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of a fourth living creature say, Come, and I saw, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So tonight we're going to focus on those four horses, the four horses of the apocalypse. The first thing we're going to do is, to put everything in context, is go to Romans. Romans chapter 11. In this chapter, uh, in, a, in um, Romans... St. Paul is talking, of course, to the Romans. And verse 13, he says, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if the rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. St. Paul here is saying, the reason why I'm preaching to you Gentiles is that so I can reach some of my fellow Jews. I can't reach them directly, they'll stone me, but I'm going through you to them. And he points out something very important. If the rejection, if the rejection of the world of, of Jesus Christ means life to you Gentiles, why is, that saying, why is he saying that? Why is the rejection means life for us? Because the rejection of Jesus Christ indicates the end of the old covenant. And therefore, the beginning of the new. Right? So the rejection is the end of the old and therefore signifies the beginning of the new. And then he adds, if that means... Um, you are now part of the covenant. What will their reconciliation mean if not life from the dead? And so the church has always taken these words to mean that before the end of times, the Jews will convert. All right? There is a mass conversion of the Jews to the faith before the end times. If the dough is holy, if the first fruits are holy, well, who are the first fruits? Well, Paul himself, the apostles, Our Lady, all those who believed Christ right who are around him, if they are holy, if, the, if, if, if they are holy, they're going to make the whole dough holy. So these are no word of despair, but by their own power, by the power that Christ gave them, they're going to be able to sanctify the rest. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the richness of the olive tree, Israel was always depicted as an olive tree. And some are broken off because they rejected Christ. Well, now you, a wild olive tree, wild olive branches are being grafted onto that tree. Meaning, you Gentiles are now part of that tree, of this olive tree who is Israel. Okay. So, is, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember, it is not you that support the root, but the root supports you. That means that as we're going to see now in the book of Revelation, as those curses are going to unfold on the world, it is a call for being sober. 
The covenant, you've heard me say this a number of times by now, has blessings and curses. Every covenant from that of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, and even the covenant of Jesus Christ has blessings and curses. The blessings are for those who follow the covenant. As long as someone follows the covenant, the blessings come. As soon as someone doesn't follow the covenant, curses are triggered. And those curses are medicinal. Their purpose is to bring you back. If, you're, if you have a dad who loves you, you have a mom who loves you, you understand that very, very clearly. If they love you, sometimes they may come, come upon you like wrath because they really care about you. So that's what you see a loving father do. And Paul is saying, if you're seeing this happening to your brother, don't boast, saying, ha-ha, I'm so much better off than him. Okay? Because God shows no partiality, as Scripture says. doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Romanian or a Chinese. or God does, doesn't show any partiality. He treats all the same. Okay? So he's explaining to the new convert, remember... Don't boast, don't pretend that you're in good shape and that you are so far better and superior to those who are not part of the church. Because you're calling, you're calling God's wrath upon you. He adds, verse 20, They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast only through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. Stand in awe. A sign of a living faith is one one is awed. And you've heard me say this a number of times. You ought to be awed at being a Catholic. It's an awesome thing. Stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. That is a key interpretive verse for Revelation. Because the literal meaning applies to the time of St. John. It applies to those Jews and those Romans who are attacking the church on both sides. And we're going to see how He's going to deal with them. But, as you know from the four senses of Scripture, they also apply to us, to our own day. They apply in every age. God holds the key. God's opened the seals. Christ is king forever. And therefore, he deals with his enemies and with those who are faithful to him in the same way. He shows no partiality. Yes? So the fourth sense, the gods are logical or how do you pronounce that? I don't know. The first is the literal sense, the anagogical, analogical and moral or tropical. Well, that applies to the church and the end times. Yes. Absolutely, that's what I'm doing. Yeah, that's why I don't, I don't stand by the futurist, um, uh, preterist, futurist, idealist, and, and moral. Those are four ways of saying the four senses. Four senses of Scripture apply by and large to all of Scripture. And I'm going with a literal sense, but you can apply also all other senses to the book of Revelation very, very well. Absolutely. So, note then the kindness. Verse 2022 is also very important to us. Note then the kindness 
and the severity of God, we would much rather stick with the kindness and drop the severity. Revelation doesn't allow us to do that now, does it? Note the kindness and the severity. Kindness toward those who have fallen, but God's, I'm sorry, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. God shows no partiality. Right? So, that passage here is going to help us understand what goes on in, the, in this chapter with the four horsemen. Because one set of interpretation you may have come across are that those four horses, the riders that are on them, are evil. I've read a number of commentators who will simply say, these are evil things. And as soon as you take that tack or that approach, you run into serious problems. For one, those commentators may seem to indicate that these evil things, those four writers who are evil, are doing things on their own. I mean, sort of like God is sitting on the side and watching what's going on. But he's not really engaged or involved in this. You know, God created the world, put it on autopilot, and then from time to time he comes and watches it. Sort of, you know, when your mom made a stew, from time to time she'll come and then just stir the pot a little bit. But the stew happens on its own. We're in that stew. So the potatoes bang with the tomatoes and the onions, and it just all happens on its own. And, you know, God is kind of looking at it from afar. Don't think so. Not supported by Scripture in any way, shape, or form. That's problem number one. Problem number two, already told you that this... The, the, the scenery or the scene that we are being shown is the liturgy in heaven, mass as it's celebrated in heaven. There were an initial phase corresponding to the liturgy of the word where God was being praised by these elders. It is called also liturgy of creation. And now the lamb appears on stage or appears on the scene. Stage would be a bad word here. The Lamb is now present, and He opens that seal, and as He opening the seal, things occur on earth. That's what the liturgy is all for. That is the power of the Mass. That is why the Mass is, in a sense, the CPU of the planet. It runs everything. Nothing happens that doesn't happen through the liturgy. That is its power. And we Catholics have got to rediscover this and understand it so we can pray the way God wants us to pray. Now, those four writers, I read the passage fairly quickly, but if we go back now and pick on certain elements, we'll see that there's certain key words that we have to understand. The first being that the first white horse had a bow and a crown was given him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. Now the second <clears throat> was permitted to take peace from the earth so that men should slay one another. What is that? War. Right? So that's the scourge of war. The third, a black horse and a rider had a balance in his hand and I heard 
what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and a th- three quarts of barley for a denarius. A quart is about one kilogram, 30 ounce. And a denarius is equivalent to a man's daily wage. So that translates into a man's daily wage able to buy about 30 ounces of wheat. Indicating what exactly? Famine. All right? Famine. And then the fourth one, and I saw and behold a pale horse. Actually, it's a sort of a mistranslation because they really don't know what to do with it. The, the Greek says a green horse. So, given that no one had ever seen a green horse, um, they kind of translated a pale horse. But perhaps a better translation would be a deathly looking horse. horse. Indicating what? Plague. Disease. All right? And the fourth writer has not only the has not only death, but also has the sword, famine, and pestilence. Okay? He kind of brings those back. We're going to see why. So, first, the white rider has a bow and was given authority to, to conquer. He's, he went conquering and to conquer. And he's followed by the second and the third rider, which bring war, war and famine. And the fourth rider brings plagues, war, and famine. Okay? The other thing I want to point out to you immediately is that nothing happens. Nothing has happened yet. They are being sent. No action has yet taken place. That's why this section is a warning Wars have not yet been declared. The plague has not hit. Famine hasn't hit yet. It's a, we're, God is staging what is he about to do. Now, first, of course, as, as a background to all of this, is Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 27 and 28. I don't know how many of you have read those, but if you haven't, I really encourage you to go back and read them. Um, One thing we could do quickly is to take a peek in the book of uh, Deuteronomy, chapter 27. Something interesting happens there. Yes, and I didn't mention 27, so it's my, my mistake. Verse 11 in chapter 27. Moses is instructing them in what they have to do once they pass the Jordan. And Moses charged the people the same day saying, When you have passed over the Jordan, these shall stand upon Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin, six of the tribes, are going to stand on one mount to bless. And these shall stand upon Mount Ebal, for the curse. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulon, Dan, and Naphtali. 
And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel with a loud voice. And then follows 12 curses. Cursed be the man who makes a graven or mortal image and an abomination to the Lord, a thing made of the hands of the craftsmen. Cursed be who he, he cursed be he who dishonors his father and his mother. Cursed be he who removes his neighbor's landmark, etc. There's 12 of those. So what is going on here is the ratification of the covenant, the swearing of the oath by Israel, saying, everything God told us to do, we shall do. And God has established this oath with them, this covenant with them, sealed by an oath, by their oath, saying, we will do everything you told us. And God said, if you do all these things, you will be blessed, and otherwise you will be cursed. And the subject of the curse is Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Now, if we look again very, very quickly at, say, uh, Leviticus 26, we will notice one thing that is um, very interesting about those curses. We, you know, in, in, our preparation, in, in our preparation for the book of Revelation, we spent quite a bit of time on those two chapters. 26, Leviticus 26, verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, I will give you rains in their season and land shall yield its increase, etc. Those are the blessings. And then, verse 14. If you will not hearken to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my ordinances, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, I will do this to you. I will appoint over you sudden terror, consumption, fever. Okay? Consumption and fever, the plagues. That waste the eyes. Um, I will set my face against you, and you shall be smitten before your enemies. War that you're going to lose. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And then he says, and if you do not, hark, if in spite of this you will not hearken to me, then I will chastise you again sevenfold for your sins. Seven. The sign of the covenant. right? I will sevenfold for your sins, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like brass, meaning dryness. There will be no rain, and that entails also famine. And your strength shall be spent in vain. Uh, and the land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. So we see war, famine, and death, and pestilence, right? Then he repeats it again. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not hearken to me, I will bring more plagues upon you, sevenfold as many as your sins, and I will let loose the wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children and destroy your cattle and make you few in number, so that you sh- your ways shall become desolate. And right here in Revelation, I just read as the last part, the last horse being unleashed, one of the things that he's going to use against them are the wild beasts. That's why you have wild beasts over there. It is, takes us all the way back to Leviticus. And if the, by this discipline, key on that word, discipline. Right? So what is the purpose of those curses? It is to discipline us, to bring, bring us back to him. If by this discipline you are not turn to me, but walk contrary to me, then I, will, I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will smite you sevenfold for your sins. And again, the sword that executes vengeance for the covenant, and there will be pestilence. When I break your staff of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven, and shall deliver your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. Famine. Because there are not enough bread for everyone. You will eat and no one won't be satisfied. Right? There's not enough for everybody. 
And in spite of this, you will not hearken to me, but walk contrary to me. And then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And chastise chastise you myself sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars, etc., etc. Now, three times he said sevenfold. Three times. Right? What do we have in the book of Revelation? Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven cups. Three times, sevenfold. You see the structure? Okay? It is those curses that were put down in the book of Leviticus against Israel, which are now resurfacing in the liturgical sense. Because it is through the liturgy that God chastises the world. It isn't through military conquest and through earthly kings. It is through the ministry of Jesus Christ in the Mass. The Mass is not just about feeling good and getting together and hugging each other and singing Kumbaya. The Mass is about the realization of the covenant of Jesus Christ on earth and in heaven as Lord of Lords, King of Kings. That is the power of the Mass. And that's why Satan tries everything he can to suppress it. Or to make Catholic oblivious to its meaning so that they don't go and celebrate it as they ought. You've got to realize that at the end of the day, the battle is between Satan and the woman. Between Satan and Our Lady. Between Satan and the church. Nothing else matters to, to Satan other than the church. That's it. Now, I've, I've given you sort of the far background of those horses, but there is one that is closer, and we're going to look at the book of Zechariah. If we go to the book of Zechariah, and I'm going to start in chapter 6, but before I do so, I'm going to take a quick look at chapter 1 in the book of Zechariah. On verse 7 in the book 1, we read the following. I'm, I'm sorry. Verse 7, chapter 1 in the book of Zechariah. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, the prophet. And Zechariah said, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you who, what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which thou hast had indignation these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am very angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry, but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with compassion. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion, and again choose Jerusalem. 
Zechariah lives in Babylon. He's exiled. It is after the year, so around 587, Nebuchadnezzar came down, took, took, conquered Jerusalem, destroyed it, and then moved everybody up in exile. And now, 70 years later, the, 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 the prophecy was that the, the rest, the earth will, will see its rest for 70 years because when God established his covenant with Israel, he told them every seventh year is a Sabbath to the Lord. The earth shall rest. You shall not plow the earth for seven years. And did they obey that commandment? Nope. They went straight ahead. Sort of like, you know, Catholics that work on Sunday. They make... They they don't think God is serious when He says that's a day of rest. So they just... Work on Sunday. And God waited. For 490 years, He let them do that. The Jubilee year, which was the 50th year, the year that came after seven sevens, anyone who was enslaved, any Jew was enslaved because he lost everything, should be freed. And he should enter into possession of the land of his ancestors, even if he had sold it. You should get it back. Of course, living in America, that makes absolutely no sense because America is founded upon the principles of capitalism. But the kingdom of Israel was founded upon the principles of what? A priestly kingdom. All right? You are set apart. You are not like the other nations. You are a priestly kingdom. And what did they do? They behaved exactly like the other nations. So God said, for 70 years, you're going to go into exile because the earth shall get its rest. The covenant will hold. And now it's been 70 years later, and Zechariah, who knows, standing saying, okay, Lord, 70 years, what up? And he sees those four angels, those four writers, what do they say? They patrol the, the whole earth and, comes, and come back and say, everything is at rest. What does that mean? It means that all the nations are taking their, are at ease. Lord, you said, you said you're going to take care of this. By your covenant, how could you allow them to do this to, to Jerusalem? For 70 years, they're at ease. And then God speaks and says, I will avenge Jerusalem. And that's what he does. Now, we see those chariots again, so the four horses, we see them in Zechariah uh, chapter 6, verse 1 through 8 and following. And again, I lifted my eyes, so that's Zechariah chapter 6. And again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots come out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. Bronze is always a symbol of chastisement, okay? of, the, of, the, of the covenant being executed. In particular, the trumpets that the Jews were to blow were made out of bronze to to remind the Lord of the covenant. Bronze also, especially brass, means um, um, drought, right? No rain. But in particular case, they're coming out of between two mountains. Okay, you got to key in on those words. What did I? What did I tell you? What happened in in Leviticus? 
the tribes went up what? Two mountains. Okay, and the Levites, who were the priests, walked between the two mountains and enunciated those curses. And we have two mountains of bronze, which of course don't exist, and out in between them coming those chariots. Okay, so this takes us all the way back to that covenant. This is a covenantal judgment coming up. All right, so there are four chariots. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled gray horses. So again, the four colors, the four horses that we saw, the same colors are appearing there as well in the case of Zechariah. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered me, These are going forth to the four winds of of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go towards the west. The dappled ones go towards the south country. When the steeds came out, they were impatient to get off and patrol the earth. And he said, Go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Now, I'm not going to go through the details. The most important thing here to understand is that they cover the entire earth. Everything is covered by them. So the angels, the ministers of God, keep a watchful eye on all that happens across the earth. Whether nations are declared Christians or not, it does not matter. They all answer back to one king and one lord. And what is true back then is still true today. Nothing has changed. And the word of the Lord came to me, Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon... And go, and, and go the same day to the house of jo- Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown. And set it upon the head of Jesus. Joshua, Yeshu is the same word, right? Jesus is the Greek, but it's exactly the same word. Of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So what do we see here? We're seeing the crowning of a priest. A priest king. Right? A priest king. Now you know that from Moses onward, the lines of kings and the lines of priests are separate. One is from the tribe of Judah, the other is from the tribe of Levi, and they don't meet. They only meet very briefly with, with Solomon, only when he dedicated a temple, and here with Joshua. Because his kingdom was established in a very shadowy way. It was not really established. And then, and then Zechariah says something that is very prophetic. The son of the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord the of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall grow up in this place, whose name is the branch. The branch became a prophetic title for the Messiah. And in Hebrew, the word branch is Netzer, the root word for Nazareth. No, the Greek is, is between the word Joshua. Jesus and Joshua is the same word, Yeshu, right? So this is a prophecy. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's really a prophecy about the crowning of Christ, which we're going to see happen further in the book of Revelation, right? When, especially in, book, uh, in chapter 19, verse 11, we're going to see Christ being on a cross, on a, on a horse with a crown, Right? Okay, but the branch in Hebrew means Netzer, 
and the branch became a, another word for the Messiah, the one to come, the king, the Messiah king. And that word, Netzer, is the root for Nazareth. And the reason it's important because it helps us understand that little conversation that was between Philip and Nathaniel in John. When Philip went to Nathaniel and told him, we have found the Messiah. It is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of the branch. And Nathaniel answers, can anything good comes out of the branch? And then eventually, through the working of the Holy Spirit, because during that time when he met him, right around, around Passover, the liturgy of the temple was about Isaiah, where Isaiah speaks a lot about the root of Jesse and the branch. And that's what allowed Nathaniel later to recognize in Jesus the branch. Okay? But this, these four, these four riders patrolling the whole earth are patrolling it for what? In preparation of what? Judgment. A covenantal judgment that is about to occur. Now in John, we see them with a slight different, with a different role. Not only are they going to patrol the earth, but they're actually given specific powers. They're given specific powers. There is, before I go through the, that, I, there is one more passage I want to read to you because it's very important in understanding, in understanding how God deals with us in this covenantal way. Turn, turn to Ezekiel chapter 14. In Ezekiel chapter 14, beginning with verse 12 and following, we hear, we hear this. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it, and break its staff of bread, and send famine upon it, and cut off from it man and beast. So what are those? This is the triggering of the covenantal curses. So what he says is, when I execute covenantal judgment on a, on a land that turns against me, doesn't matter which land, any land that turns against me, when I execute covenantal judgment, this is chapter 14, beginning with verse 12. Yes. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, said the Lord God. Even if these three men were in it, they would deliver but their righteousness, said the Lord God. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they ravage it and it be made desolate so that no man may pass through because of the beasts, even if these three men were in it, as I live, that's an oath. God is putting himself under an oath. As I live, says the Lord, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword upon that land and say, let a sword go through the land and I cut off from it man and beast, though these three men were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they alone would be delivered. 
Or if I send a pestilence into that land and put out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughters. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four sore acts of judgment, sword, famine, evil beast, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. Yet if there should be left in it any survivors to lead our sons and daughters when they come forth to you and you see their ways and their doings, you will be consoled for the evil that I have brought upon Jerusalem, for all that I have brought upon it, they will console you when you see their ways and their doings, and you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, says the Lord God. Why is he insistent on that? Because he wants us to understand that nothing, no intercession can stop the curses of the covenant once they're triggered. Remember last week we looked at Fatima. One of the things that Jacinta said is that Our Lady cannot hold back anymore the hand of her son. There was a point where Our Lady could not withhold his hand anymore. That imagery is not cute. It is profoundly biblical. Because in a sense what the prophets did is precisely hold back the hand of God. Because God would send them to His people. Go tell these people. Warn them. So by their own actions, by collaborating with God, by being there, by talking to the people, they were holding back the hand of God. But there comes a point where not even the prophets can hold His hand back and the covenant, the covenantal curses are triggered. And when they are, All hell breaks loose. Yes. All hell breaks loose. Now how long did it take from Zechariah to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD? You understand that in Jerusalem, when Jerusalem was destroyed, there were between 600,000 to 1.2 million Jews in it. Not one of them survived. And this prophecy that I read to you about eating your sons and daughters, that happened to the T. That's exactly what happened. It took 500 years. God is patient. God is patient. God gives us plenty of time to repent. His mercy is endless. His mercy is infinite. But His acts of mercy are not. There comes a time where mercy ends. The way we understand it anyhow. So, the primary focus that we have to have when we read this chapter 6 is that when those horses are sent out, this is the preparation. God is sending those horses, those plagues, and He's going to execute on them. Because it is the new covenant and He is bringing, he's bringing judgment upon Israel who was not faithless to whom rejected him. And he's going to provoke the destruction of the temple, which would put an end to the sacrificial system. 
And he will also deal with the Romans as well. And we will see how. Just as he did it back then, he's doing it today. There's no difference. The difference is, as usual, we have a little bit of a, if you will, a uh, dissonance. We think that we know better. But if I was God right now, then here's what I would do. Tomorrow, I'd convert all the Muslims. And I would also convert China tomorrow. Right? And I will get rid of TV. Well, at least for 50 years. And there's a whole laundry list of things I would do. And by the time I'm done with my laundry list, you're going to be saying to yourself, thank God he's not God. (laughs) Because I'm going to get it wrong. I'm not God. I have a limited understanding that is based on maybe some years that I've lived through, my own experience, say. What do I really know? God works very differently. But if you study history, history in a sense is the teacher of religion. If you study history, you become a a more conformed Catholic. Because what the history of the world is saying to you over and over again is how the church is triumphant. At every turn of the century, every time you look at the church, the church looks on the brink of a disaster. In fact, today is the feast of St. Euthanasius in the Maronite Rite. And being a curious nature, I just wanted to know who he was. What was St. Not Euthanasius, I'm sorry. St. Eustatius. St. Eustatius. Anybody knows about St. Eustatius? All right. Well, St. Eustatius? Thanks. There's a couple of folk who are awake tonight. That's good. St. Eustatius. Do you never heard heard of him? Never heard of him before. So, of course, you know, I googled him. I couldn't find anything about him. I found there's an island in his name in the Caribbean. (laughs) It's a mystery to me. Why an island in the Caribbean is named after St. Eustatius? But there it is. I found a lot about that island. (laughs) But nothing much about St. Eustatius. What I know of him is that He was a bishop of Antioch and was deposed and exiled by Arians in the year 331. Did you know that around the year 331 and moving forward, about 80% of the bishops were Arians? Many kings were Arians. Everything looked like they're going to be able to take over. They actually had a council condemning St. Athanasius. If we were living back then today, if today was the year 331, we would look out and we would wonder what's going on. I mean, the church seems to be completely destroyed. You have all these Aryan bishops left and right, and, and how, how are we going to, be able to survive? Most Catholics today don't even know who Aryans were. I mean, these guys lasted for eight centuries, twice as long as Protestantism. No one knows who they are. And the other mistake we do is that we have constantly the thinking we live in the end times. The, the end of the world is around the corner. I, for my own sake, kind of do the opposite. You know, 
I've always been like that. It's in my nature. I think we live in the early times of the church. Wait till the year 10,722 comes around. And we are part of antiquity. You know that? You're part of the antiquity of the church? No, no, we think ourselves of being modern. We don't understand the church, see? We don't realize what the church will do. How glorious the church is. From everlasting to everlasting, the church has no end. It was in the heart of God before the creation of the world, and the church will remain after the world is gone. And you're part of it. This is what this book is all telling us. It is a book about hope and about the majesty and the glory of God. Do not be deceived by what your eyes see and what your ears, what your ears hear. But be rooted in prayer and in faith and in the Eucharist. And you'll be able to live peacefully. Now, don't take it from me. Take it from the book of Sirach. I promise you, last reference for tonight in the, in the Old Testament. The book of Sirach, chapter 39. Beginning verse 17. Sirach is after wisdom and before Isaiah. No one can say, what is this? Why is that? For in God's time, all things will be sought after. At his word, the waters stood in a heap, and the reservoirs of water at the word of his mouth. At his command, whatever pleases him is done, and none can limit his saving power. None can limit his saving power. The works of all flesh are before him, and nothing can be hid from his eyes. From everlasting to everlasting, he beholds them, and nothing is marvelous to him. No one can say, what is this? Why is that? For everything has been created for its use. There's no coincidence. There's no accidents. Nothing evil ever happens. Evil in the sense of an action contrary to the will of God. Nothing evil ever happens. Everything happens ordained by God for His greater glory and for our good. Problem is, as I said earlier, we have a little bit of dissonance because what I consider to be good right now it's not what God considers to be good. And there is sometimes the greatest source of suffering for us. Because we don't know our Father as we ought to. His blessing covers the dry land like a river and drenches it like a flood. The nations will incur His wrath just as He turns fresh water into salt. To the holy, His ways are straight, just as they are obstacles to the wicked. From the beginning, good things were created for good people, just as evil things for sinners. Basic to all the needs of man's life are water and fire and iron and salt and wheat, flour and milk and honey, the blood of the grape and oil and clothing. All these are for good to the godly just as they turn into evils for, sinner, for sinners. There are winds that have been created for vengeance and in their anger they scourge heavily. In a time of consummation they will pour out their strength and calm the anger of their maker. Fire and hail and famine and pestilence, all these have been created for vengeance. 
the teeth of the white beasts and scorpions and vipers, and a sword that punishes the ungodly with destruction. They will rejoice in His commands and be made ready on earth for their service. And when their times come, they will not transgress His order. This is the context of these writers. They are made, they are going at the appointed time to prepare the acts of God against the world. Now, you think that this business of vengeance is something we're making up. Well, let's read a little bit further and see what the prayer of the saints is all about in heaven. So, again, turn to Revelation chapter 6. And right after those four, four, uh, four um, horses are going up, the fifth seal is going to be open. And there's no coincidence why it happens right when it happens. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Witness, martyria. They're martyrs. Now, do we all agree martyrs are saints? Everybody agrees with me? They're saints? And that saints in heaven are conformed to the will of God? And they cannot err and make mistake? Do you all agree with me on that? All right. Now, here are the prayers. They cried out, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before thou wilt judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth. See, we think of saints kind of, you know, standing like a statue, hands folded, head slightly tilted, and they are saying sweet words. And then we're confronted with this. And so we go tilt. Something doesn't match. Something doesn't add up. That's not the idea we have of saints. Let me repeat to you what they say. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before thou wilt judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? You see that? That's what they're praying for. So, this representation of God as being, you know, holy Santa sitting on a, on a chair with a long white beard, and Jesus Christ being this hippie with a guitar, walking around, and the Holy Spirit being this little, cute little dove. Fundamentally, this whole notion is satanic. Because it really deprives you from a proper understanding of who God is. I'm not saying that what I'm talking about gives you full understanding of who God is. That's impossible. But we've got to see God the way He is, not the way we box Him just so that, you know, He, he scratches where it itches. And if we were to take the blessings and the curses seriously in our lives, guess what that would do to us? Individually. Makes us saints. Because now we're taking God seriously. Really seriously. We can't just have the curses. Because then we'll see God just as a master and we're trembling of fear all day long. He's a dad. He's dead. But we just can't have the blessings. Because that turns us into what? 
brats, spoiled kids, and we'll have none of that. We've got to have both. Just as in any good family, a dad will dispense both. You know, to a kid who's completely hooked on MySpace, a good dad will come and will shut that thing down. And what would that sound like or feel like to the kid? Like a curse. You know, suddenly the kid is in a dark room. He's got no access to the world. He's going to be forced to actually socialize with real people. (laughs) Talk about a curse. And these real people may happen to be his aunt or his uncle. You know, those boring old people. They don't even have to say, dude. God is a father. With the heart of a father. To those who love him, he brings on good things. And to those who hate him, Vengeance. For his glory is abiding from everlasting to everlasting. God bless you. We have time for questions that are directly related to the lecture. If you have to the talk, if you have other questions, you can wait after when we spend our time talking about other things. Yes. The question is, we heard the prayers of the saints uh, addressed to God. Asking how long before you judge and avenge our blood. And is is Our Lady praying the same? Or is she holding the hands of, of, of her son? It's a very good question. Now remember, Mary has a very special ministry. Mary has a very special ministry given to her by, from her son at the foot of the cross. Behold your son. Mary is the mother of mercy. She is called to intercede and pray on our behalf. That's, what, that's, that's why I say Mary is the greatest gift our Lord gave us on the cross. In a real sense, Mary is, as St. Maximilian Colby would say, she's the quasi-incarnation of the Holy Spirit. Meaning that if the Holy Spirit were to take form, it would be Mary. That was, these were her, his words. She's filled with the Holy Spirit, and while all of us do not know how to pray as we ought, she does. That is her calling. It doesn't detract from souls who have been martyred and who are asking God, who is a just God, for justice. The two go together. All right? Yes. Yes. The question is, right after, uh, when um, the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles, Peter came, they went out and Peter spoke. And when he spoke in the book of Acts, he was quoting the book of Joel, chapter 4. And in the book of Joel there is a clear indication about the end of the age and what would happen at the end of the age. And in it he says, for in that time, some who are in Jerusalem will escape. Only some. So yes, absolutely. He was talking about, he was forewarning the Jews about the coming wrath, the judgment upon Israel. Absolutely. And of course, our key reference here is the book of Daniel chapter 9 because in it, Gabriel very clearly indicated that after the one who is holy is being cut off, Sacrifices will cease in the temple, and it will be destroyed. Right? And there's a whole series on Daniel and all those which we've already done. I'm not going to cover that again. Uh, yes. No, the church will never come to, the, to an end, ever. Exactly. The church is glorious in heaven. Currently, the church is sacramental, right? We have the seven sacraments. After the judgment, the, the church will be glorious. The Lord will be in her midst. 
And when life on earth continues, guess what? It's just going to be one big church. The church will never go away. Why? She's the bride of Christ. He's got one bride. As he's eternal, so is she. As I said, after the judgment, life on earth will continue. Earth will be renewed. A new heaven and a new earth. And after that, the church on earth will be glorious. How that going to be? Don't ask me. Just as we're seeing with the temple. right? There's an ending to the world and a glorification of the church. Not a, not a, a beginning. There's no new beginning. It's done and over with. That's it. It's just that suddenly that which we see right now with the eyes of faith will be made visible to us with the eyes of the senses. That's the only difference. So after the end of the world, so to speak, you will not just see a host. You will see the Lord. You will still have communion. It will not end. Uh, of course, chapter 22 says we win. That's a given. Yes, no, I don't, well, none that I know of. Those are typically the ones. Why the question though? Why, why, why is the question, are there more references to the horses? It's, they're not exactly matched only in the case of the pale gray. It's, I think, an issue of translation. Yes. Yes. The first horse actually is a recapitulation of all the three. Essentially, he's going to conquer. And therefore, he is an image of Christ. I don't think he's Christ. He is an angelic being. And again, him and the horse, as far as I'm concerned, are just like the creatures. They're a physical manifestation of angelic power. It's not a real horse. All right? And he's holding with his hand this bow, the bow that was taken from beyond, behind the Lord, right? The bow, that, the covenantal bow. God is going to war. As a result of this, the others follow. The first two bring with them war and um, famine. The third bring with it war, famine, and pestilence and death. So, if you think about it, God's do, God do, does it by, by waves. He starts with a little, then He adds, then He brings everything back and adds to it. Alright? The first horse, the, thank you for bringing this up, I forgot to mention it. The first rider receives a crown. Now, this is not a crown of Robin Hood. This is not an earthly crown. This is a priestly crown. Just as those 24 elders are crowned, so is this one crowned. Therefore, it is a liturgical conquest. Right? Christ said, go forth and make nations, make disciples of all nations. That's the conquest we're talking about. That's what he's doing. As a result of this, as a result of his activity, the activity of the church, the other ones are triggered. Okay? So, for instance, today we'll talk about H5N1 or H1N5 or that kind of virus that is floating with the birds and they're waiting for it to, tra- to be transmitted over to humans and that would cause a pandemic. Okay? No coincidence there. The same curses of the covenant are still in effect today just as they were a thousand years before. And the only thing that staves the hand of God is Our Lady and the intercession of the church. That's it. But comes a point where God will no longer delay. The last pandemic, which happened around 1930, how many of you know that? I said around. (laughs) But thank you for the... 1918. Spanish flu. flu. How many died? 
Do you think there's any correlation between that and the Mass? See, that's our problem. We've been so paganized in our way of thinking that we think God is here in the church doing stuff, and then the stew is out there. And from time to time, he just goes and check it. He's got no say on what happens out there. I don't think so. Yes. See, every time Our Lady came, what did she ask us to do? But most, you know, apparition of Lourdes. What did she say? Not repent. Specifically, the first thing she told Bernadette. She told Bernadette, remember that? Penance, penance, penance. Said it three times. Before even she said her name. Penance, penance, penance. At Fatima, she said, there are so many souls going to hell because there's no one praying and sacrificing for them. So if you really think about it, Our Lady comes and calls us to what? To sacrifice so that effectively the time of grace is extended. This is what the prophets did. Every single one of them suffered. I told you that Isaiah walked around naked for three years. He was naked for three years. So every one of them suffered. And it's that suffering that extended the time of grace. Because it's all joined to the suffering Christ on the cross. But in God's wisdom, there comes a time where that stops. And we saw it. She came and she told them, if you do not do this, God will punish the world with a second world war. She was aware of it. She came to warn us. And it happened. So effectively, our mother, that's, that's why I say Mary is the greatest gift of Christ for us on the cross. Because she's there interceding for us perfectly. We may not know. We may think what, is, what we need right now is those curses. She knows better. Right? So we have a perfect human intercessor that speaks on our behalf even when we don't know how to do it. But there comes a time, as we read it, when not even our intercession will stay his end. Yes. Very good question. You see, the problem with my focus on this, because of course I'm only focused on one strand, which is the curses and God in authority. Why am I doing this? Because we live in a world that is slanted all the way to the other extreme, where God is seen only as provider of mercies and grace and does nothing you know, to, to indispose us in any way, shape, or form. Were we living in a different world, say in a Jansenist, where all I saw was God's curse and God's as a master, I'd be actually talking towards the other side, right? So every study is in the context of the time that we live in and the ills and woes we have to deal with. So we have to now bring that back together. And oftentimes I'll remind you of this. I'd much rather be talking about God's mercy than about God's curses. It's much more satisfying to me. But I don't think we'd be doing you any good service if I did that. But you have to put it all back in, in context. And so, to answer, in answer to your question, we all have to do the same thing, which is pray the Our Father, knowing that this is my Father. Will your Father take care of you? He will. There's nothing to fear. If we have this abiding love and relationship with our Father through our Lord, then we're in peace. That's it. That's it. Exactly. Exactly. It is the understanding of both that really makes us realize every time we step into the church in the presence of whom we are. And it fills us with a sense of awe before the majesty of God. And we think, I am His child. Wow. 
You see? But yeah, I apologize because I, I focus only on one aspect because of the woes we have in our time where all you hear day, day, day in, day out, God is good, but you know, all these problems, we're just doing it. He's had nothing to do with it. Just put the world on autopilot and we have to deal with it now. We put all the responsibility on our shoulders. And what responsibility is this? And how can we live in peace when everything is on our shoulders? It's on His. I don't have to worry about it. I'm His kid. Even when I mess up, I go to him and say, I'm sorry, Dad. And he sends me to Mom, and she cleans me up. What better can I have? What, how, how better can I have? This is great. I have nothing to worry about. I don't have to figure out what the truth is. I don't have to invent it. I know that everything is in his hands. He's taking care of me. Then I can bring his peace to the world. Otherwise, how can I? But I don't want it to be a faulty piece. I don't want to go out there and say, well, God is good. No matter what you do, He loves you just the way you are. You know, go ahead, contracept. Do whatever you want. God loves you. I can't do that. You see? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.